Welcome to VB Engage episode 8. Uh, my name is Stuart Rogers with VentureBeat, and as usual, I am joined by the one, the only, the awesome marketing technology god that is, Travis Wright. Travis, how are you today? I am well. Stuart, how are you doing today? That is the important question. Well, you know, we don't want to sully VB Engage with all of the things that are happening in the United Kingdom right now. Let's stay on brand. Let's talk about mobile engagement. Let's talk about mobile marketing technology. And, you know, all of that is good things because, goodness me, if we start getting into the conversation about Brexit and everything else. There might uh, be some we, tears. There, could there be may some be tears. tears. Yeah, there could there be cuss words. Tangents are not my forte, so let's stay on point. <laughs> we are going to be talking to uh, Talia Wolf today. Talia is, is amazing, and we're going to be talking about all sorts of things, including how to engage people properly through conversion optimization. And uh, we're going to be talking about jumping out of planes, um, which uh, is... Uh, Something that, um, funnily enough, is quite linked to being an entrepreneur and, and conversion rate optimization. <laughs> They're actually quite similar things. Um, Sometimes but you more, just got to jump out of a plane. You check all your equipment, you jump out, hopefully everything works. Yeah, you don't um, want to do an A-B test when you're jumping out of a plane. It's like, no, oh, did this one work? But you do no, have the or, second one, so it is kind of A-B testing. If the first one doesn't work, you have the second parachute. <laughs> A-B testing is good. Multivariate testing in a parachute jump, right. that would be fatal. You don't want to test random elements of a parachute as you're falling, do you? Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> but look, we've got to cover the news. And, you know, something big is happening in the world. And by that, I mean live streaming and live video is really taking over everywhere now. So if we think about live streaming, we, you know, we started with you know, all sorts of little solutions here and there that were you know, taking a little bit of the limelight. And then you know, people started to notice. And I think sort of the next wave of live streaming came when Meerkat came out. And Periscope came along, and you know Meerkat kind of hung their hat on Twitter as the as the basis of their growth. And of course, it was really big in South by Southwest. Uh, I think last year, a couple of years yeah, 2015, ago, 2015. Yeah, Twitter. But of course, you know Periscope comes along. Periscope is Twitter's, and therefore Twitter started to remove the platform from under Meerkat. Right, and of course, if you build your product on someone else's platform, that's problematic. If they take it away from you, you're you're, you're done for, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and actually, if you look at that, I, I was thinking about that the other day. I was having a conversation. I was at SMX Advanced, and Twitter is is having a little bit of a downfall. Right, people are down on Twitter, and they, you know, the the user base is down. And really, I think I was looking back as like, well, why was that happening? Because before they were flourishing, and they had a huge developer network, and Everybody was building cool apps on top of Twitter, and then Twitter pulled the rug out from all these developers, and then everybody stopped building cool stuff for Twitter, right? If you, you start building stuff for Twitter like Meerkat, what does Twitter do? Oh, they pull the rug out from Meerkat, and they, oh, well, we have our own with Periscope. So they've sullied the waters a bit with developers, and it's backfired on them. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. So what you've got is you've got Periscope, which is on, sitting on the Twitter platform. You've got Facebook Live which is sitting on Facebook's platform, right? Mm -hmm. And now this week, YouTube has announced that it's going to add the capability to broadcast live video right from its mobile app. The same mobile app that you currently go to to watch YouTube videos, and whether you watch them on your mobile, or, you know, whether it be a smartphone or a tablet, or whether you're you know, throwing it to the TV via a Chromecast, or whatever you're doing with, with the YouTube mobile app, you're going to have a button inside that same mobile app where one click of a button, you're now broadcasting live. And funnily enough, 
you know, you look at the screens and they do look remarkably like Periscope. It's very, very similar in terms of the interface and the way that it looks and the way that it works. They announced that at VidCon this week. VidCon's a big uh, big event that's uh, right. been going on this week, right? Mm-hmm. And you were telling me that Facebook Live have also added in some uh, extra functionality as well. Yeah, so Facebook Live is going to allow you to have a dual screen for you know multiple creators. So right now you can only have two, but uh, they're also going to have a waiting room for people to gather before the show begins, right? So right now when you stream live on Facebook, it's click, boom, you're live. You have no fans waiting. And by the time that maybe your, your thoughts are over, the fans haven't even jumped on yet. So having a waiting room is going to be good. And then the ability to have two people on at the same time, I mean... In the future, there could be VB Engage where you and I are talking about the news in real time live, and uh, we're recording it there for the podcast. So that's pretty fancy. Yeah, absolutely. YouTube is an amazing platform for video. I mean, if we look at the data, so we had a report at VB Insight of the difference between Google and Facebook when it comes to video. And while Facebook is doing some hockey stick growth numbers, you know, it turns out that Google, as in YouTube, is still you know eleven times bigger than Facebook in terms of video. Now Facebook is catching up for lots of different reasons, right? Things like, for example, the way that they count a view of their video, they they count a view within three seconds of it being played. Things like auto playing the video in the stream. So you know unless you switch that off, it's going to auto play. Three seconds goes, it counts as a view. They're doing all sorts of things in terms of the way they're counting um, in order to increase the numbers. YouTube, of course, has a huge, huge history of owning video. I mean, I forget the numbers, but you know, we're talking about millions of minutes of video being uploaded to YouTube every single day. And of course, you know, the first YouTube stars that are going to be using this live streaming capability because they're releasing it to some uh, individual you know, creators first and then they're going to roll it out to everyone else, include uh, the Young Turks and uh, Alex Wasabi and uh, AIB and you know some of these like really big YouTube stars right that are just doing incredible things on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Previously YouTube have live streamed other events right so they they live streamed the uh, the royal wedding just to get British again for a second. They did of course Felix Baumgartner's big leap from space right. I remember that that was completely fascinating. I was engaged watching it live like whoa this dude is really high. I was actually walking <laughs> to a concert in London watching it and live. I was watching it while I was walking along. I was Beautiful. I was one of those annoying zombie walkers who's just walking along looking at his phone, right? But I'm watching like, Felix Baumgartner oh, spin around oh, at 100 miles an hour oh, as he falls god. to earth. I was like, dude, that dude's <laughs> going to pass out. Oh my god. Yeah, so it's really interesting. So, you know, if you think about this, though, I remember I was at a conference in San Francisco in 2007 and watching iJustine and Justin TV doing their live streams. They were walking around with all this garb. And now we're in this age of this new form of reality TV where people can broadcast what they're doing and they can do it from pretty much anywhere. And, you know, as technology grows, and one of the things that I find is completely fascinating is that 5G technology is right around the corner. You know, we're talking 18, 24 months in some Asian countries. And it's going to start rolling out over there in 2018. We're talking 10 gigabits a second is going to, you know, everybody's going to have that connection when it finally rolls out. Once the, you know, spectrum of the 2G and the 3G and all that gets rolled up to 5G because you got to have that spectrum space. But all of this stuff, being able to live stream video, I've had some really amazing places that I was like, man, it would be so awesome to live stream right here. Oh, 
I don't have a good connection. Or, oh, there's too many people on the network, so I can't actually live stream right now. So I want to make sure that my, my videos, if I'm live streaming, are quality. And sometimes that doesn't happen without the right type of bandwidth. But over the next two to five years, when 5G rolls out, it's going to be amazing. And there's a lot of data around interactive content and live video that shows that it's not just attention grabbing. It's, it's not just uh, the fact that it, it actually... It grabs your attention, keeps you engaged. Um, it turns out that, uh, according to some research from the CMI, that interactive content is also the type of content that will be reused and encourage repeat visits. So it's not just that people will watch it live. If they really liked it, they'll come back and watch it again. Yeah. And, you know, and telling Except our story, on Periscope, right? And that was right. one of the big flaws of Periscope, which was one of the reasons I didn't use it that much, because I took a few cool videos, and I could then save them to my you know, camera roll, but it was not indexed, and it was not stored anywhere. And I'm like, get with the Amazon Cloud, upload these videos somewhere, that way people can go back and reference them, because I did a couple of really cool live interviews on Periscope, and guess what? They were gone after 24 hours. And that's not the kind of content that you want to disappear. You can do that with Snapchat because that's what's expected. It's going to be gone. But if I'm doing a live video, I want other people to be able to see it, you know, beyond that 24 hours. So I stopped creating with that platform. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, and the benefit of Facebook Live and the benefit of YouTube's new Live is that uh, once you've recorded it, it's still up there. People can go back to it. And, you know, talking about our story of, of how do you engage with people in this mobile world, this is exactly the stuff that is going to get people coming back to you, your brand, your personal brand, your company, whether you're B2C or B2B. If you're doing live video and if you're making it interesting and unique and engaging and uh, you're putting it out there on a regular basis, it's going to make a big difference to you because this is the world we live in right now. And we know that the, from the facts and the stats and all the research that's being done, um, that this is exactly what people want. Um, so, you know, I'm really excited about uh, YouTube Live um, and Facebook Live and uh, where the whole live streaming thing is all going. And, of course, you know, it's all sitting on mobile platforms. That's, that's the big driver right now. You know, that's where we're taking this. It's the mobile that's driving this. It's the data connections, as you say, that are driving this. You know, we're in for some really interesting uh, interesting times ahead. Yeah, and, and there we are again, right? So it's the big dogs leading the innovation. So you have little dogs like Blab, Meerkat, trying to prove the concept, and then the big dogs with their billions of dollars come in and then say, all right, so here we are again. Oh, it's on YouTube, it's on Facebook, it's on Twitter, <laughs> right? All the other guys get smashed. So it's like, you know, there's people out there who are innovating, and, you know, I encourage innovation. And, and as, the, as this whole space grows, we have to have innovation. These companies with these big dollars, man, they just come in. They have the user base. They've already built it up. You know, it's a sad day for Blab. You know, it is a shame. I think that with modern startups, you have to be really careful about trying to, um, in this day and age, build a product that either relies on one platform, because if that platform decides to take that away from you, you lose your entire business, or where you try to build your own platform and suck all the users in from other places to come along and just use yours. You know, I think those are two incredibly risky strategies. Um, I think the, the strategy that makes sense is to build something that sits on all platforms and is agnostic, and then that way, if one pulls the rug out from under you, you've still got the others, and 
if uh, none of them pull the rug out from you, everyone can stay on the platform they like and still use you. And, of course, it also means you've got more suitors if you want to potentially sell your uh, startup to one of those platforms and, and get bought by one of them. You've got more suitors on the table that you can go and talk to. Love it. Yes, yeah, fascinating stuff as usual with the news this week. Um, hey, listen, Travis, look, you know we can't do this podcast without the support of our amazing launch sponsor. You remember the first dollar you made? Now you want to grow to make your billionth. Have you found the right payments partner to grow with you? Braintree lets you accept every way to pay, from PayPal to Apple Pay and everything in between. All it takes is one integration. And it doesn't matter what currency your customers use, because Braintree lets you accept over 130 of them, even the failing pound. To learn more about how your company can grow with Braintree, visit braintreepayments.com forward slash VBEngage. All right. We have a great guest with us today. We have Talia Wolf. Uh, she is a conversion optimization expert. She's an advisor, a keynote speaker. Uh, she's actually the CMO of Banana Splash and the founder and CEO of Conversioner. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Miss Talia Wolf. How are, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. How are you guys? It's my knowledge that uh, you like to jump out of planes. How many jumps now? About 700, I'd say. About 700 times you've jumped out of a plane at what, 13,000 feet? Between 13 to 14, 15,000 feet, depending on the place I'm at. Um, yeah. To be honest, it's a bit like marketing, isn't it? Jumping out of a plane. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I mean, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You launch and then, you know, one thing leads to another and you end up on the ground. <laughs> or, or, so, or sometimes in the sea. That was a smooth <laughs> transition. Smooth transition. <laughs> oh. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm curious about though about that like 700 times. Is there something you you don't like about planes? Because I know personally, I like to go up in them and I like to come down in them. It just seems more comfortable that way. I'm actually petrified of flying. I hate flying and I hate planes. Um, yeah, if I could jump out every time, that would be amazing. I especially hate landings. So skydiving is actually a really good thing for me because I get to just jump out right at the right time and I'm okay because I land on my own. I've got my parachute and that's so nice. I'm so scared of the plane. I'm just gonna jump out. <laughs> Essentially <laughs> that, that is amazing. Is <laughs> I've done it. It's amazing. And when you're coming into land and you're just at that point where you you feel like you're around about the sort of thirteen, fifteen thousand feet mark, it looks so beautiful down there. You do. You just wanna jump out and enjoy it. It's amazing. But uh, we're not here to talk about skydiving. No, 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 no. This is a new skydiving podcast, actually, right? We're only allowed to use skydiving as a, as a loose and terrible metaphor for marketing. No, no, no. <laughs> we want to talk about conversion rate optimization today because I've got a feeling that, that people just don't really get it. Now, where do I get that feeling from? It's, it's not anecdotal, I can tell you. Talia, as you know, because I know you've read it, did a survey with over 3,000 conversion rate optimization tool users, and we put that into a conversion rate optimization tool report. And, you know, we found out from that report and, and from the big data we did, we were scraping the JavaScript from millions of websites to try and find out just how many people were using these tools. And it turns out, not many. And that always confuses me because CRO is effectively free money, right? It's it's a lot, lot cheaper and sometimes almost completely free to take 5% conversion from 10,000 visitors and get it to 10% conversion. It's much cheaper than getting to 
20,000 visitors. Why, why aren't people getting it and why are they not using these products? You know, I think it's a combination of two things. The first is being aware that this even exists. And the second is resources. Most people who do conversion optimization don't do it as a full-time job. It's usually another part of their position. They're working on traffic and email marketing and inbound. And another part of their position is also doing CRO. And then what happens is, you know, you've only got just a certain amount of time where you can dedicate to actually doing conversion optimization. While when you do get to doing conversion optimization, you might not necessarily know how to do it. I mean, yes, there are many tools out there, but they're not telling you how to use them. They're just giving you the option to use them. So there are very great A-B testing tools and pop-up tools and really great um, platforms out there. But if you don't know how to use them, how to identify the leaks in your funnel and what treatment you need to give each part of the funnel, you're not really going to start using these products. You're not going to be using these tools until you actually gain the knowledge and understand what you're doing. Ease of use, I guess, must come into this in a big way, as well as education, really teaching people why they should bother using these tools. But you know, do you have to be a rocket scientist in order to use these? Is that what's, is that what's turning people off? You know, I don't really think it's the tools. I think it's the sum of everything. When you do PPC, there's a certain amount of tools that you need to gain, a certain amount of things you need to learn, and then you can do PPC. And it's the same with every part of marketing. But when it comes to CRO, you have to be everything. The designer, the developer, the researcher, the analysis, you know, the analyst, you need to know copy, you need to know design, everything. And not because you're necessarily going to do it all, but it's such a long process. And there's so many things that could go wrong, you know, along the way. And it's so hard to pinpoint the problem in the funnel and then decide what to test and then decide how to test it and then launch the test and then analyze the results. And there's so many things about it that it makes it, you know, the person who does conversion optimization is really a a very well-rounded marketer that has a say in everything. And it's not an easy thing to do because there's so many different pain points throughout the funnel of just trying to optimize. Um, So the tools are just one part of it, but it's it's not the big picture. The big picture is not people not knowing what to test and how to find the leaks in their funnel and you know how to run meaningful tests that actually scale instead of running a b tests on your calls to action and green versus red you know you want to gain meaningful insights you want to test for the sake of knowledge and learn something about your customers but if you don't know how to do that then very quickly you don't want to do conversion optimization because you're not you know you're putting so much effort into it you're spending so much time in it and nothing happens mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. I mean, because there's there's a lot of different things that you that, that you can test for, right? And, and a lot of different actions that you want to happen. You want you know you want people to stay on your site longer, and you want more product views. Maybe if you're an e-commerce site, more people and you know adding to the cart and a better conversion rate overall. People checking out, right? And so where do you maybe look for testing ideas? And you know how do you know exactly what to test? That is two separate questions. <laughs> right. However, I, <laughs> that is true. I tricked you. You know, the most important part of conversion optimization is the research itself. It's divided into two. The first part is doing the qualitative research. So really digging into Google Analytics and heat maps and maybe actually going into the funnel itself and analyzing the numbers and understanding exactly what's happening. And that's kind of just finding the pain point. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different tools you can use from, as I said, Google Analytics to Kissmetrics and Mixpanel. um, And there's 
different scroll maps that you can use and really learn about the behavior of your customers. And that's the first part. So you identify the leak and you kind of figure out, okay, if I'm an e-commerce store, the biggest pain point is that people are dropping out on the product page, for example. But then you have to realize, okay, what would be the best treatment? Now, you can make it a guessing game, and that's what most people do. Okay, let me just read a blog post. Okay, someone said that they increased their revenue by 700% by just moving this button over here, but that usually doesn't work. Or you can now dive into understanding what your customers actually want. And this is when you start going into the psychological part, into persuasive design, understanding who your customer is, building a persona, thinking about what they need emotionally. Why are they buying your product? Now, I'm not talking about the features or the pricing. I'm talking about the value itself. Um, I recently spoke about this at Conversion Excel Live. When you're selling insurance, you're not selling insurance. You're selling peace of mind. If you're selling clothes, you're selling self-esteem. So you need to understand what are people looking for? What is the emotional value? And then start taking from that and building the right test for it. What do people want to feel? And then building the strategy around that. And only once you've understood the behavior, you've understood the emotion, that's when you start thinking about test hypotheses. Okay, what do I want to test? And more importantly, when I get the results, what am I going to learn? So it's not enough to just say, oh, I improved conversions by 1%, but what have I actually learned and how can I take this knowledge and translate it into a better product and a better funnel? So it's kind of like an ongoing thing. And the last thing I want to say about this is also that people tend to forget that the test itself, the A-B test that you launch, is part of the research. You know, you have to run quite a few tests before you actually can say, okay, this is the right hypothesis and I'm, you know, this is the right thing. This is the right treatment. So testing is part of the research and it's ongoing research all the time. It sounds to me like, you know, the bigger part of conversion optimization isn't the tools, like you say. It's, it's not necessarily that famous old thing where you've mentioned it, you know, if we change the, the, the color of the button from red to green, then, you know, what does it do? The big results come from a true understanding of customer behavior more than they do from changing web elements or changing email subject lines or any other thing that you could you could test. It it's really comes down to the way that we react as customers. I mean, what are some great examples that you've seen of people changing um, the way that they approach their customers based on customer behavior and what kind of results have you seen from that kind of conversion optimization as opposed to just changing graphics or changing subject lines? I differentiate between the two. So one I call testing elements and the other one I call testing strategies. And at Conversion, one of the things that we've been doing for many years now is really focusing on testing emotional triggers and strategies. The way it works is you can test call to action buttons or you can test headlines. And usually what you'd see, if we're talking about a regular old landing page and you try different types of titles, you'll normally see if this is the funnel, then the top of the funnel will definitely increase or hopefully will have an increase in conversions. But as you move down the funnel, you're going to see less and less increase in conversion rates. It's going to get smaller. And usually once you look at the bottom line, not really you know, any difference. When we've been testing strategies and hypotheses and really kind of looking into complete different changes, and this is when we don't just change the copy, we'll change the colors, the hero image. We'll change the entire... Uh, structure of the page and the strategy of the page, what we'll actually see and many times is that the top of the funnel will have quite a nice increase in conversion rates. But what really has 
the biggest impact is the bottom line because what happens is people get a certain impression they go for a certain experience and they they want to go through the entire funnel so you move the needle across the entire funnel and not just the top part and that's where you start seeing real results that aren't frustrating and you feel like you've really learned something and you've actually moved move the needle I have a question around that because it's really interesting because you have some clients who are like, we need a whole brand new redesign. We need to start, you know, we want to do it all over. And I'm always like, well, no, actually probably we, we, first of all, I think we need to test your navigation because your navigation seems off to me or we need to start testing some different things like, like you were talking. So how do you approach a client that says, no, we must redesign or maybe a client that doesn't want to redesign, but their site's so out of whack, they need to redesign. When is that fine line versus redesign versus continuing testing and optimizing? You know, it's a good question. I mean, I'm usually very much against complete redesigns simply because, you know, why go live with something that's going to take you six months to get up in the air without, you know, testing some stuff before? You've got the platform, you've got the traffic, you've got people coming. Why not start testing different concepts and get the idea of what would work well with a redesign? I mean, so many times I've seen websites do a complete redesign, launch and find out that nothing works. Right. And that, you know, and then it's even worse, it's ruining conversion rates. Mm-hmm. Usually that's because they've completely disregarded mobile, but also it's because they didn't take the time to do the research. You know, most people wouldn't, I don't want to say most because it's not fair, but a, a lot and many companies, when they do a redesign, they think about branding. They think about what looks nice. They think about what the competitors are doing. The competitors doing this, they must know best. Mm. But they don't actually think about, oh, wait, if I'm going through this entire redesign, okay, what's going to work best? How am I going to increase conversions? What is the best experience I can create? And, you know, how can I test this before I put in so much resource, time, money to do a complete redesign that's going to frustrate everyone in the system and then find out it didn't do anything, right? So that's kind of my take. On, mm-hmm. on complete redesigns. But, you know, you. every story to tell. You bring up mobile there. I mean, mobile is really interesting, especially from a customer perspective, because our smartphones are very different to how we, uh, how we treat our desktop devices. Uh, when we're on a, on a laptop or, you know, Chromebook of some kind or a desktop machine or whatever, yes, it's, it's a, a personal-ish device, but it's not anywhere near as personal as a smartphone. And, you know, as a result, we, we do treat the smartphone differently. And, of course, when we have communications come into the smartphone, they have to be different too. Websites have to be different. Apps have to be different. They have to treat you with a lot more respect because this is a very personal device and you're going to react to uh, sort of, you know, creepy messages, um, uh, you know, in, in a different way when people are just using personalization you know, a bit too much and going a bit too far. That's always going to be exacerbated on a mobile device versus a, a desktop what are some of the things that people should should ward against when you know they are uh, designing for mobile or when they're communicating on mobile? Well, I think the biggest problem right now is that people aren't really treating mobile visitors the right way. So they're treating them as if they're mini desktop visitors. The go-to for every business is responsive design. And responsive design is essentially taking the really nice, good-looking desktop you know, website that you have and condensing it to this size and just making it look really nice 
but it doesn't actually address the specific behavior of mobile visitors. I mean, when we're on our phone, we're multitasking, we're on the go, we're probably, we might be watching TV or we might be using an iPad at the same time. We're, we're in a different, completely different state of mind than we are when we're on our, you know, in front of our computer at work or at home. Um, and that's why people really do need a different um, user experience. They need to be addressed um, in a different way. When I'm on my mobile phone, I might want a quick way to call you or a quick way to navigate to you, um, you know, just by knowing where you are, which I don't necessarily need when I'm on my desktop. So you really, I mean, most businesses really do need to start making that, that kind of change towards A, identifying who your mobile visitors are. I mean, right now we're looking at the fact that over 65% of all online purchases start on mobile. Mm -hmm. this, is, wow. this is insane. I mean, this is something that Google said just a few weeks ago. I think it's 65 or 67. But they all start, you know, 67% of all online purchases start on mobile. Now, they don't necessarily convert on mobile. Some of them will make it to desktop and convert that because we use two or three different devices to convert. However, if you don't create the right experience on your mobile phone, people who would, you know, would convert on desktop won't make the change to desktop. Mm. So you really need to start identifying, you know, who is your mobile customer? What are they looking for? What are their search terms? What landing pages they're landing on? You know, where are they exiting? It's a completely different customer that needs to be treated differently. You know, I'm very radical about it. And I know that many businesses want to create apps, for example. But the problem with apps is that 80% of all usage of app usage is done on three apps, Facebook, YouTube, and Facebook Messenger. Those are the three most used, you know, apps. So you've got like so much less <laughs> opportunity to actually rock mobile apps and you've got people coming to your website. I mean, most companies are seeing about 60% of mobile traffic now to their website. So you should be treating them differently. You should be utilizing it in a better way. That's great. And then it also opens up a whole new question we won't go into, but cross-device profile stitching and how do you, you know, how do you attach the mobile to the desktop, to the tablet, to the Apple Watch and whatever, you know, and the, the right. uh, Samsung contact <laughs> or whatever, right? So it's crazy. We must go into that in a, in a future episode. Um, this has been amazing. We have run out of time for today, Talia. Um, <laughs> thank you, first of all, for saying that it takes, you know, six months to get a website up in the air because now I know that uh, you're just going to jump out of it once it gets up there. Thank you so much for increasing the uh, English action quotient by a, to, by a good 100% on this episode. So I appreciate that too. Um, always nice to have a little bit of support to uh, offset Travis. So, And uh, thank you so much for being part of VB Engage. Um, it's been awesome having you on today. Thank you for having me. It was great being here and finally kind of talking to you guys. Yeah, little does the audience know this was the third time was the charm. So we're not going to tell them that, though. Oh, oh. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't don't, don't tell, tell anybody about don't the technical problems. No, no, no. We really, no, no. we really appreciate you, Talia. I think uh, I think you're brilliant. It's been great chatting with you. A lot of great insights. So definitely, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Excellent stuff. Thank you so much, Talia Wolf, for being the guest today on VB Engage. We really appreciate that. Thanks again to our launch sponsor. Braintree. You can check them out at braintreepayments.com slash vbengage. Make sure to check them out. And also next week, tune in. We have Andrew Grill. He is the global managing partner of social consulting at IBM. And he is also the former CEO of Cred. So we talk about engagement and also social influence. 
That's a great episode. If you missed last week's episode, make sure to tune into that. We had Brian Kramer on. We talked about sharing, social sharing. We talked about the importance of uh, building relationships and whatnot. That was a great episode as well. So thanks again to uh, Talia Wolf. It's been a great episode. Thank you, Stuart Rogers. And for Travis Wright, I'm going to say goodbye. And for Stuart Rogers, I'm going to say bless.